Well, let's go ahead and begin with the word of prayer as we get started this morning. Unfortunately, I forgot my Bible. So, um, you know, it's in my office. I don't think I'll need it. I'm just going to stay with the text. Uh, but there is a verse. I don't know if somebody knows where it is or could look it up that I wanted to include that I did not. Where Paul says, I would not have known uh, coveting was a sin if the law had not said you shall not covet. I don't know if that's in Romans or Ephesians or. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember exactly, but if someone could find that. But let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would be with us in this hour as we study your word. Father God, give us your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at the two lists of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. These are the only places where the Ten Commandments are given in their fullness. And I thought it would be worth putting out to you since Deuteronomy, as they're going into the land, Moses actually stops and recounts all of the commandments and does it slightly more fully. Uh, he gives a little bit more words. You could see that if you compare the list. There's a much longer preface, but even what he says God says, especially if you look down where the uh, fourth commandment is, you'll see there's more words in the Deuteronomy version than in the Exodus version. You see that in the fifth commandment uh, and a little bit in the um, tenth commandment as well. And so uh, I want to notice those things. Remember, the most significant point in Israel's formation is Sinai. When God rescues them from Egypt and he brings them to Sinai and he speaks and the whole people hear the words and the voice of God. And he makes the covenant with them shortly after that and the elders are called up on the mountain. So Sinai is the most significant point that has formed Israel. And Moses repeatedly refers back to that in Deuteronomy as they are on the cusp of going in and entering the land, which was the purpose for the Exodus, that God would bring his people out of slavery and give them their own place, which they're about to do. But, the, but again, Sinai represents still that high point, that uh, zenith, that they have already um, experienced. And so just as they're ready to go to the next phase, Moses gives them all of the Ten Commandments again. Now, um, I want to notice a couple of things real quick that I've done before, and, um, but I think it's worth doing, especially for those of you who have been, haven't been in those classes. And that is the Ten Commandments, and as I give them to you, notice I did not number them. I mean, you could count them up and see um, that there are ten given. But we see in Christian history and in Jewish history, everybody recognizes there are ten commandments because the Bible repeatedly uses the word, the number ten, to describe the commandments that God gave on Mount Sinai. So we know we have ten commandments. Everybody agrees with that. Yet if you would add up the imperatives, the actual verbs that are in the commanding form, in the list, whether it's Exodus or Deuteronomy, you're going to get way more than 10. There are way more than 10 imperatives uh, simply because God gives several times or several commands, if you want to say it that way, 
um, different commands within um, the commands themselves. And so you can see that, uh, for example, in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven buff that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So so there's one imperative in that sentence. You shall not make for yourself. But in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them. There's another command, another imperative verb. Okay? And so you'll, you'll see that sort of thing in the commandments. And so you can't just count imperatives and say, well, these are the ten. Uh, and you can't go by verses either because some of the commandments take several verses. And, of course, the verses are added well after the inspiration of Scripture, even though very early on the Jewish scribes included certain marks that very much correspond to the versification that occurs hundreds and really thousands of years later, or more than a thousand years later. And so you can't do it that way. And the reason why I'm saying all that is if you would compare the Ten Commandments as we number them, you're going to see differences in the different traditions, whether it be the Protestant in general tradition, what we would call the Protestant Anglican maybe tradition, versus the Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition, where they share some common ground here, um, or the Jewish tradition. There are three different ways of numbering the commandments. I don't know if you if you are aware of that. I was, I was existentially aware of this as a kid growing up because I grew up in the Lutheran Church and a lot of my friends were Protestant. And in a town like Salzburg, you would go to you know the Baptist Church for this event and you would go to the Methodist Church for this, or the Lutheran Church, and we had the Ten Commandments in our church on some plaque or something. I don't remember, and I remember reading them and seeing them, and knowing what they were, and then going to the Presbyterian church, and they would be different. And it always struck me, and I'd think, oh, you know, I I must be remembering this wrong. You know, I must be mistaking this. And what struck me and what would stand out to me was that in the Lutheran church, we had two commandments for coveting. We had, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife was number nine, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house was number ten. And that is the way the Lutheran church numbers the commandments. There are two commandments that include the commandment for covenant. So why don't they have 11? Because they combine the first and second commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. That's the um, preface. But then you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, etc., etc. That's all one in the Roman Catholic and Lutheran numbering of the commandments. So you could say, well, we could go to the Jews and we could maybe have a tiebreaker. No, the Jews have their own numbering and it's not the same as either one. (laughs) The Jews count the preface, the Jewish church, if I can say it that way, counts the preface as the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. No imperatives, and yet the Jews say that's the first commandment. The second commandment, according to the Jews, is what we would have as the first and second commandment, or what the uh, Lutherans and uh, uh, Catholics would have as just the first. First, in other words, they combine, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself a graven image as commandment number two. 
If you were Jewish, you would call both of those as the second commandment. Just as, as a Lutheran, I called both of those the first commandment. Then you get all the way down to coveting and the Jews combine them like the Protestants do and neighbor's house and neighbor's wife is just one commandment and not two as the Lutherans and the Catholics divide them again. And so we all have to come up with 10 because the Bible says there are 10. But the way in which they are um, distinguished is different whether you're in the Jewish community, the Catholic Lutheran group or the Protestant Anglican group. I would argue that the Protestant Anglican group gets it right. I'm not just doing that because I happen to be that now, but even as a, like a Lutheran, when I finally realized the difference, it seemed to me when I was in the Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist church and I would look at their commandments, it made more sense because why have two for covenanting and not just one for covenanting? One for covenanting makes sense. Uh, and to see that no other gods is different from actually making idols of another god seems to me to be uh, more logically um, the fact. But I do want to notice something. Nobody excludes anything. It's not right for us to say, well, the Lutherans are okay with idols because, you know, they combine the two. That's not the, the case at all. Certainly not in conservative like Missouri Synod or Wisconsin Synod Lutheranism. They don't believe in that um, and so forth. Uh, neither do the Jews. And again, they combine the two just like the Catholics and the Lutherans. So, you know, we all have the exact same substance. Nobody cuts any of it out. They just group it together differently. And you can say, if you want, well, that maybe that's why, you know, this or that group is guilty of this or that sin. But you're just saying that. You can't, I don't think you can do that when all of us keep all of the words of God together. So I just want to notice that right from the start, uh, that there are different ways of recognizing the, how we number the Ten Commandments. By the way, the Orthodox are with the Protestant and the Anglican group. So you have the Orthodox, Protestant, Anglican, the way I give it to you. Then the Lutheran Catholics, first and one and two are combined. Nine and ten, well, ten is separated into nine and ten. Um, and then, as, as I've already said, the Jewish group. Um, but what I want to notice here as we, as we move on is the differences in the lists, Okay. So it's all the word of God. Exodus 20 is the word of God. Deuteronomy 5 is the word of God. Every word of it is the word of God. But Moses gives more detail in Deuteronomy 5, as I said, in several places. And words are slightly different. Um, really, in the first three commandments, as I number them, no other gods, no images, shall not take the name in vain. There, there's, it's word for word the same. There is a slight spelling difference here or there. Um, I, I believe one of the lists has a um, holum where the other one just has a holum vav, which, as you know, is no big deal about the same thing, right? Holum, holum vav. I mean, everybody knows it. no difference in that. Um, the holum is the sound O. Holum vav is the sound O. Uh, one has a dot with a little thing underneath it. One just has a dot. Um, it's, a, it's a variation of spelling as all the way through the time of the Reformation. People would uh, vary, uh, in various ways spell things. In fact, um, um, who is it? Um, not Luther, Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli would spell his name differently at different times. Just spelling wasn't like the way it is now where it's completely, you know, it has to be this way. 
And that's just the way it was for most of the history of the world in most written cultures, spelling. There were variations of spelling. But anyway, uh, so there's a slight spelling difference, you know, here or there. But other than that, the words are exactly the same through the first three commandments. Now, there's a huge difference in the preface. Exodus 20, now, of course, Exodus 19, they're getting, you know, they're at the mountain. God's telling them he's going to come down. He warns Moses, don't let anybody come near. And the lightning and the fire and the shaking and all that happens. But all we get for a preface is, and God spoke all these words saying, and the reason why I separate that off, because I want the, I want the preface there to be the same where it is the same. The verse 2 is the same as verse 6 in Deuteronomy 5. Saying what? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The exact same thing Moses records that he says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 5. But he does a little bit more of preface work here. Notice in verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said to them. Again, remember, they're, they're ready to cross the Jordan and, and fight for the promised land. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. And so now that they've been written down and they've been taught, remember this is 40 years later, really um, 38 years later, because it was uh, a year in when they got the commandments. So like 38 or so years later, Moses is now giving them commandments, but he reminds them certain things, right? That you may learn them, that you may be careful to observe them. And then verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb's. Remember, Horeb is Deuteronomy's word for Sinai. It uses Sinai a few times, but usually uses Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers. That's really significant because he did make the covenant with their fathers. What's Moses saying? He's saying that's not the significant thing, that he made it with you. Whether, you're, whether you were born a lot or not, and many of the people weren't born at the time. This is 38 and a half years ago. But Moses is reminding them that they're in covenant with God, and that covenant was made with them. That they were included because their children and their children's children perpetually were included in that. So Moses is telling them it's as if you were there and you swore to God, just as your parents did, that you would keep the covenant. And so the Lord did not make his covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those here today, all of us who are alive. You see how he's emphasizing that. That the people, again, as they're about to go in, would be strongly reminded that God made a covenant with them. Even though they didn't hear his voice, even though they weren't there, it was with them. Because it was with the people and their children, even those who were not yet born. So this is really significant because they're going by the written word at this point. They didn't hear this. They weren't there for this. And yet, yet he says, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Now, there would have been some who were alive because the children still live. Remember, the, the adult generation were wiped out. They had to all die before they were allowed to go in. So those who were, you know, 20, 25, whatever, and above are all dead. But you could have been a teenager at Sinai. You could have been, you know, a toddler. And you could have remembered some of these things. So there, is, there are some, but there would have been many, too, who would have just been born. Anybody 38 and under were not there, literally. But they were there in, in their parents, as it were. And so Moses reminds them of this. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. Um, 
And then he, then he gives them the commandment. He said, so a lot, of, a lot of extra preface work because, again, these people, many of them were not there. And Moses is reminding them their obligation to God through the covenant that God made with their fathers, in, in, but he really made with them, whether they were alive or not. And God talked with them, whether they were alive or not, in the persons of their fathers. And so he's trying to really show them that the application and the weight of the commandments is just as much on them as it was on their fathers. They are the same people, right? And so you get the commandments. And again, I said that the Jewish church counts this as commandment number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And that's the first command, though there's no actual imperative in there. And the second commandment are our Number one and two for the Jews, even as the first one is one and two for the Lutherans and the Catholics. All right. But I'm not going to go over the rest of this. So the, the ones that are the same here. So you can just see word for word then. As soon as you get through the preface, word for word, um, what we call the preface, I am the Lord your God. And then commandment one, no other God before me, word for word, Exodus, Deuteronomy. The same thing is true in what we call, again, commandment number two in the Protestant tradition, uh, carved image, likeness of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, etc. And then we get the same word-for-word word correspondence in verse 7 with maybe a difference in the, in the holom or holom vav, as I said in the spelling, but word-for-word. Word. Then you get in the fourth commandment and we get a difference. Okay? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's Exodus. Deuteronomy, he uses a different word. Uh, zakar is remember. Um, shemer is keep. Observe, keep the Sabbath day. It doesn't say to keep it holy. It just says observe this, uh, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. There's not another keep word there. I don't want you to think that. that we say that in English because we can't say to holify it. We could say to sanctify it. But to make it holy, to keep it holy, whatever. You could say it that way. But again, don't think there's two words keep there. There's only one word. So observe, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. In order to have it as holy. But the observing is the difference from the remembering. Now the emphasis is on the practice, really, uh, that they are to continue to do as they go into the promised land. Again, and God gives them the rationale. Same thing, six days. You shall labor, do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath. You shall not work. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant. And then we get an addition again. Nor your ox or your donkey. That's added in Deuteronomy. That's not present in Exodus. Now, which one did God actually say? Most would probably say that he said the fuller version and Exodus gave us, us a slight truncated version. But to me, it could be just as true that God literally said the, the truncated version and Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is spelling out some more implications. Oh, by the way, your ox and donkey are included in this too. And that's what God said. Whether or not he literally spoke it or not, that's what he said in, in that that's what he meant. Um, so you have the cattle in both, nor your cattle, but again, he adds ox or donkey as they're getting closer to the land. Well, why ox or donkey? Well, the ox and the donkey are going to be those domesticated animals that are going to do work in their fields when they have them, right? And they're about to go into the land and take the land. And so that emphasis on their practice 
that they are going to actually conduct themselves in the land. You get the same then, nor the stranger, your stranger literally, who is within your gates, word for word. But then, then, then a reason, a rationale that again is added only in Deuteronomy. That your male servant and your female servant may rest just like you. Again, they're about to go into the land. They're about to take possession of their inheritance. And guess what? Some of those who've worked harder are going to have more means and they're going to be able to have servants. <clears throat> and some of those who did not work hard are not going to have means and they're going to have to hire themselves out in order to function. And so they're going to be servants. And that's the case in any society. That there are people who are more diligent and more successful and there are people who are not. And it's not because of who their father was, you know, privilege or something like that. Uh, in Israel's case, those, especially in farming, you know, you work hard and uh, you're able to have more. So some of those would have servants. And so God immediately reminds them. Again, remember Deuteronomy's emphasis on justice. Just because somebody is lower than you, has to work for you, they get to keep the commandments too. And you better make sure that they do. And I think that's the reason for the emphasis here as Israel's going into the land. That Moses is reminding them of this. Again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, this new application. Your male and female servants are to rest. And your ox and your donkey. Don't think that, you know, don't try to hyper-literalize things. Oh, the cattle aren't working, but we're going to plow some fields over here with the ox. Because he doesn't say ox, you know. Now, he couldn't say every animal, your goats, your ducks, your whatever, be ridiculous, your birds, but they would understand, you know, anybody who was sincere, anybody who really wanted to obey God would understand, obviously, this includes everything, and God spelling out a few extra things makes it even more emphatic. You're not to have anything work on the Sabbath, and that includes your servants. And then he gives them a new application or a new incentive, a new motivation from it. The first one was creation. Four and six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see. That's really the theological reason, right? This is the reason there is a Sabbath. God worked six days and he rested one. And he blessed the one, obviously not for himself. He doesn't need his blessing. He sanctified one, obviously not for himself. He doesn't need that. We need a day that's sanctified, that's blessed. So God is even in creating things, creating things for the good of man. Remember Romans 8, 28, all things God causes all things to work for good, even the way he created is for us in a sense, that we would have this pattern that we need in the way that God made us so that we could be like him, even in our day-to-day -day things. And so the, the creation ordinance of the Sabbath, God worked six days, he rested one, therefore you work six, rest one. But now comes another application. It's not as if that's not true anymore. All right, as they're about to enter the land because Moses doesn't say it. They know that's part of the commandment. They were there at Exodus or in, yeah, at Mount Sinai, whether they were there or not. I mean, the, the teaching would have been there. But Moses gives them now a particular application. And remember, here comes the remember part, which is all the way at the beginning in, in Exodus. And remember that you, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep this Sabbath day. So because you are a slave and God liberated you, that's a reason now to, to keep the Sabbath day for you and your animals and your servants. Your Same word in Hebrew, servant, slave. Your slaves, they get to rest because you were a slave 
and God did this for you, and you make sure that your servants get to rest too. You're not going to explo- uh, yeah, exploit the means of production for yourself. You're going to keep my commandments. You live for me. And I think that's a powerful uh, statement that God is saying. Again, that, that whole thing, that whole paragraph, that's why I put it in bold. Everything I put in bold is different or added in Deuteronomy from Exodus. Okay, And again, Moses is preaching this. He's under the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, and God is speaking this to Israel in a different way, emphasizing different things. Not changing, not, not uh, erasing or correcting anything, but giving a fuller application. Uh, even as Paul will often do, or the apostles, when they refer to, quote, sometimes the Old Testament, they may change it, tweak it a little bit. Why? Because under the inspiration of the Spirit, they're giving a new application, a fuller application. Nothing in, before is being corrected, but now God's Word is being applied. And any good minister ought to be able to do that too, not inspired and infallibly, but we ought to be able to take Scripture and apply it. And that's true for the ordinary Christian, right? You ought to be able to read something about a battle... And recognize that you're not called to go kill the Philistines and yet learn something from that, right? We apply the word of God. But Moses is doing that under the inspiration of the Spirit. So it's, it's for all of us. Bob. That's great. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that. That, uh, but that is a great uh, observation there. That, yeah, what is what is liberation from slavery uh, of Egypt? That that is the type, right, of the gospel that's referred to repeatedly throughout scriptures. Uh, even in the New Testament, we're told that you know it's not so much Egypt that was our place of bondage, but sin that was our place of bondage, and we've been freed from sin. So yeah, there's a there's a preaching, as you said, Bob. I like that of, of the gospel. Yes. But it's, it's saying you know, to the servants, mm. you know, you know, yeah. the gospel, even to the stranger saying, we stop because they observe holy days. So he's, he's, yeah. He's observed all kinds of holy days. Yes. Once a week, we take time to honor the God mm. The God who saved us. I like that. And, they, and, and so that Sabbath was. And of course, what are they doing on the Sabbath? They're worshiping, right? So in worship, you remember salvation. Uh, you're, in fact, you're acting out, as it were, that. That God has saved you, therefore you have this rest now. All right, so the fifth commandment, we get another little bit of difference, a little bit of addition. Uh, Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 5, honor your father and your mother, same as Exodus. And then, as the Lord your God has commanded you, all right, that's added, that your days may be long. That's right, word for word from Exodus. But then we get another little addition, and that it may be well with you. And then we get back to uh, Exodus again. Upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you, which is again word for word. So there's two little phrases. As the Lord your God has commanded you, and that it may be well with you. And again, think about Israel living in the land. That it may be well. They want, it to, they want things to be well. Everybody wants to live in a time of peace, in a time of prosperity. 
And God is here saying to them, well, if you honor your father and your mother, that this is going to be very much conducive to that. And again, um, well, I might as well go uh, on the back. I wasn't going to do this until the end. But Paul's application of this particular commandment especially, if you look under Roman numeral 4, where he talks to the Ephesian church, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Over there's Paul's speaking about the commandment. And then he continues in the commandment that it, he says, this is the promise in other words, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, on the land, same word. Uh, that it may be well with you. Now notice Paul quotes from the Deuteronomy version. Because that it may be well with you is not in the Exodus version. And notice what Paul leaves out. The land which the Lord your God is giving you. That's not true to the Ephesians, right? God isn't giving them the land of Ephesus. (laughs) Go in and take it. They have uh, the same command to honor their parents... And there's the same promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, Paul says. May live long, we might even apply it that way. But even that, and of course we understand and our Westminster fathers who commenting on this say that that's not an absolute promise, right? Everybody that lives long honored their parents. Everybody who didn't, didn't honor their parents. Well, then I guess Jesus didn't honor his parents because he died at 33. You know, start applying that nonsense. Uh, But that's not the way in which we are to understand this. But God, you know, does talk here about that it may be well with you. But what's interesting, from there, where does Paul go? Well, then he finds an application the other way. Not so much to the children, which is what the commandment literally says. You children honor your parents. But Paul now sees, well, the parents too have an obligation. You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. That's included, in other words, in this commandment. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And of course, uh, Reformed exegetes will tell you that fathers there includes mothers. Mothers too are part of bringing up the children in admonition and training of the Lord. Um, but then Paul jumps to bond servants. So this isn't even like, you know, consanguinity anymore. The, you know, blood relatives, which is what literally the commandment says. Children, honor your parents, you know, honor your father and your mother. That's Usually blood. I mean, not always. They had adoption too. But it's the family, right? Affinity, if not consanguinity. But Paul goes outside that. Bond servants, which in many cases were temporal. Because you would work off a debt or something. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service, etc., etc. And all the way through, this, uh, you know... Application And then masters too, so this would be like parents again, and you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master. So you see how Paul unfolds and applies this commandment really to all human relationships. And that's the way our, our Westminster Catechism sees it. There's a huge section on the fifth commandment in the uh, larger catechism. I think it's like 10 or more questions on relationships between superiors, inferiors, and equals. And again, in terms of authority um, and how we are to relate differently. And and they see all these obligations in the commandment in order to regulate every relationship in life. 
and how you are to conduct yourself honorably towards others and honor them and recognize the value and dignity that's in each human being and that each human being is an end and never a means. No one is ever a means for you to use. Everyone is an end for you to respond to, for you to seek to bless. Whether you are the master or whether you are the servant, you should be trying to bless your fellow man. And Paul applies all of that from the fifth commandment, um, which helps us and really shows us in the, you know, the Protestant community that when we take the commandments, as you know, Calvin did and as Luther did, uh, and apply them, not just the negative, most of them are in the negative, right? You shall not, you shall not. But to show the positive, well, that means you should do the opposite good that the negative evil is, is forbidden from. And so we see the Apostle Paul doing that in this commandment. But we see Moses doing that a little bit right here. That it may be well with you upon the land, which again is something that was not said in Exodus, but is implied in other words. It's there in the teaching. And that's true also when we see the, these other commandments. Now, the, the 6, 7, and 8, murder, adultery, steal, very, the shortest commandments in, in both lists, and they're word for word the shortest commandments, and they're not different at all. But we know, again, that there is an application there, right? I mean, if we just literally said adultery and not uh, also fornication. What's interesting is that the Hebrew word zonah is adultery, or fornication. It's really like porneia, the Greek word, which includes all sexual sin. Uh, and so um, that's what we have here because there's a more, uh, more kea word, which is more, more kea, which is adultery proper, but porneia would include adultery as a, as a bigger word, as it were. But um, we know that that's included, right? All sexual sin is in the seventh commandment where Jesus says, you know, to even look at a woman and to lust after her is to already commit adultery. And that's referring to somebody, again, whether or not they're married. To look at a woman and lust for her that's not your wife is the understood, um, is the understood meaning. I mean, there's a sense in which even a husband can't lust for his wife. I mean, that's you know, wrong to sort of uh, have sex like some kind of God within your marriage. That's wrong as well. But, but still, uh, but the commandment in general applies whether you're married or single. I think that's Christ's point. To even look at a woman to lust for her is to commit adultery, whether you're married or single, because adultery includes lust and fornication and everything else. And so you have this broader application of the commandments that we know uh, is legitimate. Uh, and I think that's part of what we're seeing with Moses applying it in different ways. So, well, let's move on to the ninth commandment. There is just one word that's different, but it's a very significant word when you look at it. You shall not bear against your neighbor a witness of falsehood. That's the Hebrew way because it's in the constructs of the of is understood. I like reading that um, because, it, I don't know, it just looks beautiful when you read it in the Hebrew and you know exactly what it's saying. You, um, but we would say you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But literally it's you shall not bear against your neighbor a witness of falsehood. Now if you say it that way, then you can see how the other one has exactly the same phrase at the beginning. And just that one word different at the end. You shall not bear witness against your neighbor a witness of vanity. Vanity, which is not necessarily falsehood. But it's empty. It's vain. It's destructive. 
not constructive. You know, you can say something that's true about somebody and say it in a way to destroy them or hurt them. And I think that's what Moses is saying here now. He's showing them, well, technically everything I said was true, and so the fact that I'm doing it to destroy my neighbor isn't breaking the commandment. No. <laughs> You're supposed to love your neighbor. In fact, again, if you would read the Westminster Larger Catechism on this, you would see where they would say we have an obligation to build up the reputation of our neighbor, not just to not tear it down, but to build it up and to not bring out things that would hurt them. You know, this is part of the reason why we get in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother alone, right? You don't go broadcasting his sin. You want to protect people's reputations in the church. That's part of loving your neighbor. And that's what this commandment really is based on, loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor doesn't mean you're just never going to say anything false about him. It means you're not going to say anything harmful to him. Something in vain, in your vanity, to put him down somehow. To talk about how much better you are at this or that. It might be true, but you're breaking the commandment, whether it's true or not. And I think that's what Moses is showing, again, in this difference. And, and all of this has to do with they're about to go into the land and have possessions, and as they go into the land and have possessions, they need to be thinking about how they're going to live with one another, which wasn't as much the case at Sinai. At Sinai, they're getting the law, the moral law, right and wrong, good and evil, something that, yes, was written on man's heart at creation, and for the most part is still there, even before God speaks at Sinai, people knew it was wrong to kill and commit adultery. And yet for God to spell it out and to give, especially those commandments as our Reformed Fathers would say that have less light of nature, like the Sabbath, you know. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you get the Sabbath is one of the longest commandments because there's less light of nature for it. So the word makes up for the fact that we don't feel maybe the compunction to rest one day where we would feel bad if we beat somebody up for no reason. You know, or stole something from somebody. We might have some conviction. We try to justify ourselves. Or God forbid we actually murdered somebody. No doubt we would try to justify it. He had it coming. But you would feel. You know, um, you would feel the uh, conviction of that. Um, if you've ever read uh, Crime and Punishment. Uh, you see this, this murderer who had all these justifications for why he was going to kill this wealthy, arrogant woman and her sister. Didn't mean to kill her sister, but he ends up killing them both. And then all of the guilt, all of a sudden, all of the reasons are gone. And he just has this tremendous guilt. I remember having a dream one time that I had killed somebody. I, don't, I wasn't going to say anything about this, but that just came to my head. And, and yet, like, in the dream, I had thought that my murder of this person was a dream. And yet, in the dream, I realized that I had just fooled myself into thinking that but there really was a place and I remember trying to get to the place where I had buried the body is this macabre or what and it was this it's funny in my memory it was this place that used to be a haunted house in Salzburg that was torn down for like a couple of Halloweens it was an actual you know you'd go in and but it was like really but and I remember uh, me and my buddies one time we snuck underneath it because you could get underneath it and they had like some fake human bones down there like for Halloween uh, but we actually went down there, you know, and, and every once in a while in my dreams, I'm back in this place. But like, and, and, and trying to like, on the one hand, pretend like it didn't happen. But on the other hand, like, I got to get rid of the body. But then it's like, no, this is wrong. And I don't remember what happened, how I resolved it in the dream. But I just remember that, that tremendous guilt that I wanted to not have. 
and why did I do this? And I couldn't remember why or even who it was or what, you know. And, uh, and, and that's the thing with, with much of the moral law. We have it on our hearts. But some of the things we might not know. As Paul said, I would not know. I would not have known that coveting was a sin unless the law had said you shall not covet. And as I said before, to me that's the argument that the Protestant numbering is correct. Because Paul doesn't say, unless the law had said you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you know, number nine or ten. By the way, that's, that's different in the Roman Catholic Church and Lutheran too. The Lutherans have you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, number nine, and house, number ten. The Catholics have ten uh, sorry, nine is house and ten is wife. And the reason for that, as you'll notice in Exodus and Deuteronomy, there is a different order. This is really important, again, as, a, as an argument for the Protestant numbering being the correct numbering. And remember, the Jews combine the two coveting into one commandment as well. But 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's Exodus. Deuteronomy. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not, and it is a different word, desire your neighbor's house. Do you see how it's flipped? Now, if there are two different commandments, if house is nine and wife is ten, how can Moses flip them in Deuteronomy? That would be a contradiction. Wife is nine and house is ten. You'd have to say, well, he's no longer strictly going by the order. Well, he did for the other eight, and suddenly he reverses them. No, I think it's proof that coveting is one command. You shall not covet is one command because it's flipped again. And chamad is covet. But ava is desire. And so Moses puts, so in 17 in Exodus, you shall not chamad your neighbor's house, you shall not chamad your neighbor's wife. Covet, covet. But in Deuteronomy, it's you shall not chamad your neighbor's Wife, or sorry, your, yeah, your neighbor's wife, and you shall not avow your neighbor's house. You shall not desire, crave it. Um, which again shows us that uh, the commandment is against this behavior of, of humans, which is in the mind, right? Desire, covet. You're not actually doing anything. But those words can be expressed in different ways. Do you know that in the Lord's Prayer, where we have in Matthew... Um, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Luke, Luke's version, it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Um, and again, well, what's the idea behind the two similar words? The idea is what's important. And that's what's being said here. But I do want you to notice, not only do you get the difference in order, you get one other addition. Do you see it? His field. Because you didn't have any fields in Exodus. You didn't have any. You had a wife, right? You had a, a tent, but you didn't have a field yet. But now as they're getting into the land, and Moses is really concerned about Israelites living in the land, he emphasizes that includes your field. And of course, it did include your field in Exodus. But again, you see the application and the different application as they're going into the land, that the law itself in its being re-given, in, in a sense, becomes a sermon. And that's part of the, the uh, uniqueness of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy really is sermonic instruction. One of the interesting things about the commandments, whether you look at them in Exodus or Deuteronomy, every one of the commandments are given in the third or second person masculine pronoun. All right? It's 
You, second masculine singular, shall have no other gods before me. You, second masculine singular. Right? It's not yuns. It's not plural. They have a plural. Uh, Atem would be plural. Or a ten in the feminine. But you shall have no other God. And you shall make again. Second masculine singular. Second masculine singular all the way down. Well what does that teach us? That teaches us something too right? That women are included. In the masculine pronoun. Because if they're not. Let's just hyper literalize it then. Women can do all these things. Because there's not a commandment for them. They're only for men. Only men have to do all these things. Isn't that crazy? Uh, so obviously. God is including the, um, the, the women in, in with the men. And that's important for us when we get to applications where Paul says, fathers, uh, you know, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That includes mothers, obviously, uh, because they both raise the children. All right. So as we you know, close on the commandments, we have this Protestant tradition of as a summary of the moral law, righteousness defined, wickedness identified, and I just have a last, you know, um, thought. Are the commandments still obligatory under Christ as then, as they were then under Moses and for the same reasons? Obviously, they're still in force. Um, but are they more or less obligatory? And I think you have to say that they are the same. They're not less. They're not more. They can't be more because you must keep them, right? Well, we must still keep them today. I think that's important to recognize because I know sometimes... Well-meaning Protestants will say things like, well, you know, my sins are, are forgiven past, present, and future. So whatever I do, doesn't matter. God loves me just the way I am, and it doesn't matter. And he always sees me in Christ. And that sort of thinking, it seems to me, leads to a kind of loose living where the commandments really don't matter. You know, that's a, uh, at least a, a, a possible connotation of that emphasis whereas I think we want to say sure God sees us in Christ but he saw them in Christ they were in Christ too they weren't saved any other way there's no other way to be saved but to be in the Messiah whether he came yet or not you have to have faith in God's grace to save you in the promised seed of the woman and if they had that they were his people and if they didn't they might have visibly been but they weren't truly in a converted state and so they were obligated to keep the Ten Commandments, and we are obligated uh, as well. They were not obligated to keep it in order to be saved. We are not obligated to keep it in order to be saved. They were obligated to keep it because they were saved. God has brought you out of the land of Egypt. He has brought you. He is your God right now. You don't have to keep these commandments so he'll become your God if you do them well enough. He is your God. He saved you, now live this way. And that's, I think I see the same thing. He is your God. He saved you entirely by grace. But now you're supposed to live this way. It's actually, it's actually a blessedness. It's not a, oh, God has saved us, now we've got to keep these rotten commandments, right? God has saved us so that we're able now to be righteous. Not perfectly, but wow, we have love for him in our hearts. And what we want to do is bless our neighbors. What we want to do is not have a vain witness about them. Yeah, I have some pride and vanity that sometimes wants to do the opposite. But the spirit in me, and hopefully the, the nature in me that's new, wants to love them. And that commandment I see is beautiful, right? And I don't see it as I have to do this to get my reward from God. I see it as my privilege 
to walk in this. And I actually can a little bit, never perfectly, but I actually can now. And what a joy it should be. And I think it's the same thing for them. So that to really to hold on to the commandments as a joy and as a privilege and as now we're free to keep them. Whereas before we were in the bondage of sin as they were in the bondage of Egypt. And we couldn't. We couldn't have God as our God. We had to be under the Egyptian gods, the under the flesh, the world, the devil. And so now we're set free. There are different principles. There are different applications, right? We're not commanded to build a fence around our roof so that our neighbors don't fall off and hurt themselves, but we're commanded to, to do things that protect them. Judith. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's a good point. Um, you know, I emphasize the same status that we have in that we are regenerate, right? Um, but there is a different status. Israel was under servants, as Paul says in Galatians. They were, they were the heirs. But they were little children, under-servants, mediators, all kinds of mediators, prophets, priests, and kings that they had to go between, couldn't get close to the Lord. Now we go straight to Christ. We are brought into the family of God. We are grown-up children who have rights and privileges. We can come boldly right before the throne of grace, right into heaven itself. The Spirit lives in us. He's not in the temple over there, and I've got to stay away. Though I am still his child. I mean... I don't want to lose that. I don't want to turn Israel into the people who were God's people by their works. That's, that's such, a, such a gross distortion. They were a spiritual people, but a spiritual people underage. Spiritual people didn't assume the privileges that we do. Yes, Christy. Yeah, um, you know, and, and, and it's a reality. I think, first of all, we need to acknowledge that. I mean, there are times where, you know, I'd rather do something else, you know, especially Sunday evening. I don't have any obligations Sunday evening, so I could blow it off, you know. Wow, the couch is so much more comfortable about 5.30 than it was, you know, at 4 o'clock or something like that. And, uh, and, and, and this is where I think, the, you know, our knowledge needs to, to step in and to recognize that we are not complete, Right. We don't always and we never have the fullness of joy in the obedience that we are called to. Um, but that's where we, you know, Paul talks about stirring up the grace within you and buffeting his body, you know, to keep it. Uh, and, and we have to do that sometimes is the way I would say it. And, and, we, and we do do that in life. You know, that same person that would say, well, it's a hypo hypocritical for me to go to church if I don't feel like it. You know, try that with your boss at work. See what happens, you know. Well, I didn't feel like coming in today, boss, and I didn't want to do hypocritical work for you. You know, uh, no, we have to do our duty. And so th there is that element where, you know, Judith referred to the already not yet. You know, we have the spiritual reality, but we're not yet there. 
And I think, you know, if you have friends like that, you can exhort them and try to encourage them that, you know, what would God rather have you do at this point? Uh, the, the idea that you have to be perfectly sincere to go, then we would never go. Because even in my best moments, I'm not perfectly sincere, right? Uh, so, you know, Jay Adams has a great way of thinking about this. You know, we typically in the flesh will say, well, uh, we have to feel, and if we feel, um, then we'll, we'll, um, we'll do, and if we do, then we'll think, you know, that way. And really the reality is the opposite. Um, we need to think, what's my duty? Then we need to do it, whether we feel that way or not. And usually when we do it, we do, the feelings do come, right? When I didn't feel like going to church, but I went to church, I've never left the church on a Sunday evening service and said, boy, I wish I would have stayed at home and watched golf. You know, sometimes I feel like that before I go, but when I leave, it's like, man, I'm glad I worshiped the Lord. And I think, you know, that's the thing we've got to recognize that if I have the spirit, the feelings will follow. They're never going to be perfect. But whenever you do the right thing, when you didn't feel like it, you do feel better. And I think that's what we have to strive for. Don't listen to that. I don't want to do my duty because, you know, it's not real. It's not full. It's never going to be real. It's never going to be full. But it is your duty. And if you do it, you will feel better. You know, I think that's what I would say. So uh, good questions. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you, Lord, that we do have your spirit in us and that our spirit has been changed, has been born again, and that we are striving, Lord, to put on more and more of you and to put off more and more of the old that still lingers on. And just help us to do that, Father. Help us not to listen to the flesh, but to listen to the Spirit and to truly have the joy of the Lord as we do, that we would see how much delight there is when we obey you. Even when it seems hard, when we do it, what a joy it is. Help us to believe that. And now, Lord God, help us to prepare our hearts that we would worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.